Let's turn our eyes to him, begin with worship this morning. darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life. That I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for son and daughter the king of glory the king of glory who rules the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace this is unfailing love your life that I would be set free oh Jesus I sing for all that you've done for me worthy is the lamb who was slain worthy worthy is the king who conquered the grave worthy is the lamb who was slain
Yeah. 
Thanks, Mountain View. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I uh, hope you're out there with us this morning and uh, looking forward to digging into Acts chapter 10 some more. Uh, we're going to spend a couple of weeks in this chapter and hopefully uh, we'll be able to find just some, some challenges for us to accept. And uh, what I want you to know is if you haven't paid attention to the All Church email that I send out every Friday, we are planning for a regathering, um, uh, opening of, of our worship gatherings again. 
on October 4th. And so please pay close attention to those emails as the details come out. There's a lot of things we're going to be doing to make that possible. And so uh, we just want to make you aware of that and make sure you know that there's going to be a lot of a lot of things that we're going to have to do just to be able to gather again. And, and primarily, it'll be limited in size. And so I want you to know that we'll still be continuing this kind of gathering, the live service, the live stream for you when you're at home. And so let's dig into Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 tells us that Peter was on a roof at Simon the Tanner's house. And it was in the middle of the day, and he was waiting for his noon meal. And the house, they had flat roofs, and there was usually a staircase that went up outside up to the roof so that they could gather or or pray or, or sit or enjoy the outdoors, whatever you wanted to do. And so the roof was a nice place to escape the the hustle and bustle within the house. And so probably there was some sort of awning there that protected you from the sun, and it stretched out over Peter, and Peter fell asleep. I mean, why not? You're praying, and you fall asleep. And as Peter was dozing, he had a vision, and this great sheet was let down from heaven. And it was a sheet that had all sorts of animals on it, birds, reptiles, clean animals, unclean animals, and some that the Jews would call clean, and others that the Jews would call unclean. And so while Peter is wondering what this vision means and and what it all meant, and, and a voice from heaven, a voice from heaven told him, get up, Peter, kill, eat. And Peter responded instinctively, immediately, surely not, Lord, no way, Lord, not going to do it, Lord. In other words, he's basically saying, I've never eaten anything impure, unclean ever. And so we talked about this last week, that, that sometimes when God asks us to do something, and we say, no, Lord, we actually disqualify God from being our Lord the moment we say no. And so this seems to have been a, a very incongruent conversation within Peter's own mind. The Lord was giving Peter a command, and Peter, while acknowledging that Jesus was his Lord, nevertheless contradicted Jesus by saying, no, no. And so at this point, in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, is what it says. And so the voice came to him again a second time. And this time the voice said, what God has made clean, do not call common. I think Peter scratched his head on that. I think he really did. Because he'd never heard anything so strange. What what in the world was all of this about, he must have been thinking. Is God contradicting himself? Has God changed? God said these rules, and now all of a sudden he's changing these rules. And while he's thinking about it, the same thing happened yet a third time. And I suppose, although we are not told explicitly that Peter's response would have been the same each time, no, Lord, I can't do that. No, Lord, that's not possible. No, Lord, I won't do that. By the time the drama had been acted out the third time, Peter must have begun getting the idea that God was, God was trying to tell him something, that God was trying to communicate something, even though he didn't know exactly what it was. Surely God was trying to communicate something. We can't spend time on this, but it's really interesting to me how, how Jesus deals with Peter in a series of threes. And so three times, here he is dealing with this. Three times Peter rejected the Lord. Three times God, Jesus asked him when he restored him to ministry, do you love me? And so the image of God is all over Acts chapter 10, all over. And God is dealing with two totally different people from 
two different ethnicities, two socioeconomic, different socioeconomic levels, different academic backgrounds, completely two different people in every way when he's dealing with Peter and Cornelius. And God is dealing with Peter's prejudice. That's what's really God's dealing with is so that the kingdom of God might continue to advance, so the kingdom of God might continue to thrive and grow. And so before we go on, I need just to understand what the definition of prejudice really is. And the definition of prejudice is this, it's just simply seeing another person as less than yourself, as less than yourself. And we're we're going (coughs) to, excuse me, we're actually going to see in Acts chapter 10, we're going to see Peter deal with his prejudice. We're going to be able to read here in a moment about his prejudice. You're going to see it so clearly in Acts chapter 10 that you're going to know that he clearly viewed these Gentiles, Cornelius specifically, less than himself. And so what is happening in Acts chapter 10 is giving us something beyond some moral argument about how prejudices are wrong. We know that. All of us know that. The reality is that the moral argument doesn't seem to be enough. And if it was, then there wouldn't be so much hatred and so much division and so much distance among us. I mean, if if the moral argument was enough to remove our prejudices, we wouldn't be fighting so much. And, And I hope you hear that because what God is doing in Peter is he's breaking down some walls. And and what God is doing is he's revealing a deeper truth that all are created in God's image and none of us are common and none of us are accidental. That we were created with purpose and with intentionality that God designed us in our mother's womb. And so God is revealing this deeper truth. And when we truly believe this deeper truth, the way we see ourselves will change. And then the way we see other people will change. And so let's dig into Acts chapter 10. And I want you to notice, I want you to see this. Watch how Peter struggles, because he does. Acts chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 17 this morning. This is what it says. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering this vision, the sheet with these animals, reptiles, birds, unclean and clean animals, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. So it's interesting as Peter has this vision three different times. He has this vision. Finally, the sheet takes off and and goes up into heaven. And and so Peter's perplexed. He's trying to make sense of everything that he's just heard. Is this from God or not? And then all of a sudden, the Spirit says to him again, rise, go down. There's people who are waiting for you. And I love this phrase, such a critical phrase. For I have sent them. For I have sent them. After Peter told God, no, it's not surprising that God had to make it very clear that he sent them, that God is a part of this. Like, like, Peter, you're struggling to understand what I'm really trying to say here. And so I've got three guys who are coming to look for you, and I want you to know that I have sent them. And so Peter, he's struggling with this clean food thing, this unclean food thing. And once he realizes that Gentiles are going to lead a Jew to evangelize Gentiles, he probably won't go. No way. That's not how it works. So God had to make sure that he understood that I, 
I am, have sent them. If we go on to verse 21, it says this. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and he went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We have to set this up. We have to understand really what's going on here because there's a Roman soldier and there's two servants who belong to the household of Cornelius. And they have come to take Peter... A Jew, so three Gentiles have come to take Peter, a Jew, to go back to Cornelius' house. And so when Peter gets to the door, he remembers God has sent them. And I am convinced that what Peter first sees is he sees this Roman soldier, and I think what Peter's anticipating, he's anticipating that they're going to arrest him, or they are going to beat him, they're going to punish him because he's been doing these things. And, And so maybe he even has in the back of his mind that this Roman soldier has come because a Roman soldier wants to know about Jesus and this this thing, this movement that's happening. And so you know, you know his hungry stomach dropped. It just dropped when he learned that he would be going back to a Gentile to preach Jesus. I mean, Peter would have almost been willing to take the beating, to be arrested, to be put in jail, as opposed to preach to a Gentile. And even though Cornelius was well-respected or well-spoken of, Peter, Peter still would have considered these Gentiles dogs. And that's what he's thinking. And so what we see in verse 23, when Peter invites them in, into the house, it's not even his house. Have you had anybody staying with you and then they invited more friends over? Right? I mean, this is, he's staying at Peter, Simon Peter, staying at Simon the Tanner's house. And he says, all right, come on in to Simon's house. Not my house, but Simon's house. But he's starting to get it. And the road is still going to be tough for Peter. It's still going to be confusing, as we will see. However, we see some hope that he's starting to get. He's starting to understand. He's accepting this mission that God has for him. And so I want you to look, though, as he struggles at the irony that exists. And it says this, excuse me, on Acts chapter 10, verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Man, I love this because where do they go? They go to the city that's named after the most well-known king of the known world. And so Cornelius, it says, was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. So it's not just, it's not just Cornelius who's going to hear this. Cornelius says, I, there is a word from God and I'm going to invite everybody close to me. I'm going to invite my friends and I'm going to invite my family. And so when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down to his feet and worshiped him. Now, this was customary for the Romans, but not for the Jew. The Jews held very tightly that the only person ever to bow down for anybody was a, person, a Jew to bow down to God. And so only God was to be honored this way. And so you know what Peter was thinking. Peter's thinking, well, he's not that devout. He's not that God-fearing because he's bowing down to me. But Peter lifted him up and he said, stand up. I too am a man. And verse 27 says this, and as he talked with him, he went in and he found a bunch of people gathered. 
I mean, Peter's like, listen, I've already come with this Roman soldier and with these two servants of yours, and I meet you, Cornelius, so I guess we can have the conversation. But when he went into the house, guess what? There's a bunch of people there. And he said to them, listen to this, he said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. I mean, have you ever met somebody quite like this? where they know this truth and they just want to make sure how much you know, it says this, but God has shown me, Peter said, that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so when I was sent for, I came without objection. And so he asked the question, so why am I here? Why have you sent for me? What do you want from me? Cornelius invites a bunch of people to hear the message through Peter, the message from God through Peter. And I don't know this for sure, but I imagine that Cornelius knows Peter is a Jew, and so he's prepared Jewish food, kosher food, given him a place to stay. He's very hospitable. He's excited because Peter is going to bring this message from God. And, And Peter says, oh, don't forget, I shouldn't even be here with you. Like, don't you forget for a moment that this is unlawful. I'm not even supposed to be engaging in conversation. It's wrong for me even to walk into your house. And sometimes we miss this. But, but there's certain things sometimes that we don't need to say. And this was one of those moments that Peter probably didn't need to say what he said. But he went on, he went on. He says, you need to know how unlawful it is for me. And this is what's crazy. He's not violating Old Testament Testament commands, and he's not violating the Mosaic law. He's, he's, He's breaking the traditions that came throughout the years through the Jewish customs and, and how, to, how to perform and how to act and how to behave a certain way so that you wouldn't be determined unclean. And so the Jewish traditions of purity made it virtually impossible for Jews to associate with Gentiles without becoming ritually unclean. But then he says, but God is showing me my prejudice. He is showing me my prejudice that it's okay to be with lesser people. It's, it's okay to be with you dogs. It, it's okay. But Peter's still confused. And so he has to ask the question, so why am I here? What am I doing here? Look at verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. Oh, and you have been so kind to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to speak to us. Man, this is powerful. And I don't know where you are at. I don't know where you land. I don't know where you are in this idea of being prejudiced or what you might hold as prejudiced. Who in our society you might consider lesser than yourself. But I want us to start with some application. I want us to ask this question that we asked last week. Is the Bible sufficient 
for all matters of faith and practice? Is the Bible sufficient for all matters of faith and conduct and how, how we ought to behave? How we ought to practice our faith? And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, who do we see lesser than us? Who, who do we see as somebody who is less than us? Who do we see, what, who is that person that is lesser than us? And, and why? Why do we hold these opinions? And, and if the Bible is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice, then why? Then our faith matters. And the matters of faith and practice are best, are they best based on what I think is best for me, or are they based on what God says? If Jesus really examined each of our hearts, where would he find some prejudice? Where, where would he find? I mean, who is it the person that, that you are moving through social media and you see that that person and maybe it's not an individual maybe it's just that person represents something that you can't stand what what happens here in your heart when you're driving down the road and and that person passes you and 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 they represent something that that we just don't like we just can't stand what what happens in our heart when we see somebody who's behaving a certain way and we just think it's absolutely disgusting and we think of a name to call them or we label that we attach to them what what's going on in our hearts see this is the truth from last week and it's the truth again today how we deal with one another especially in our differences is a matter of faith and practice how we interact with one another, especially in our differences, is a matter of faith and practice. And I believe Peter is starting to understand. He's starting to get this. He's starting to understand that the issue of clean and unclean foods really is not about food at all. That it's always been about people. And I know we know this stuff. I'm not preaching anything that, that most of us watching right now wouldn't agree with. Like, like, absolutely, yes, I, I, we shouldn't be prejudiced. We shouldn't be bigots. We shouldn't be chauvinistic. We shouldn't be racist. We shouldn't be biased. We shouldn't be judgmental. We shouldn't be discriminatory or segregated or chauvinistic. We, we shouldn't be any of these things. And, and I think that all of us right now, if I was in the room with you, you would shake your heads yes, and we would say absolutely we should not be those things. Absolutely we shouldn't. But if we know this, if we know this and we agree on this, then why is there so much distance and division among us? If we know this, then why, why do we still have so much division, so much disunity? And so much distance between us. If we all would agree and say, absolutely, we shouldn't be these things, then why? Why? Did you know that the U.S., the United States of America, has been at war for 226 years out of the 244 years of its existence? This, this is true stuff. 
The United States has been at war for 226 years out of the 244 years since 1776. This is only 17 to 18 years of our entire nation's history that we were at peace without war. Since the United States became a country, we have only had 17 to 18 years of peace where we weren't engaged in some sort of battle within ourselves or or in a battle with another nation. And listen, it doesn't look much better on the global scale either. And so as Christians, let me caution you, don't get defensive right now. Don't be frustrated. Don't turn critical because I'm not debating the existence of racism or hatred or discrimination. But let let the record of war speak for itself. That most of the wars are based on two people groups where one of the people groups looks at the other people group and says, you are lesser than me. That is why we engage in these wars. Go to World War II. It was a Nazi German who said, the Jew was lesser than me. Go to the Civil War. Look at all of our wars. It was based on two groups of people. And one of the groups of people said, you know what, you are lesser than me, and therefore I'm going to do something about it. And so the the record of war in, in the United States speaks for this, that most of the wars are based on this, where one nation believes this over another nation. And here's the problem with war. Fighting, hatred, whatever you want to say, this is the problem, that it gives us a false sense of meaning. <coughs> Excuse me. Why? Because people everywhere are longing and looking for meaning and purpose. And so we are addicted to fighting. We are addicted to hatred. War is like a bad drug. And only Jesus can give us true, real meaning in our lives. And the fact that we have been created in God's image shows us that we are valued and loved by God. And this is where the secret lies. Value and significance is not born out of us. Neither do we have it because of us. Rather, our value and our significance, our our value and our meaning in life comes from the fact and the wonderful fact that God is our maker, that He is our creator. And so we resort to fighting and we resort to, to hating because we place value and significance on intangible things or on created beings rather than the creator. And the fact that we are made in God's image frees us to, be, to, to love all, to love all rather than living to be loved by all. And for those of us who call Jesus Lord, we have to understand something. Reconciliation has already been completed, already finished. We have to ask ourselves, which side then are we on? Let me explain this. For everything that we are hearing on the news, forget, forget the things we're hearing on the news. And, and forget the things that we're seeing posted on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Forget about the baggage that we talked about last week that we carry from our childhood. Look at this for a moment, just with a clean heart, with clean eyes, open heart, open mind. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And before we can even grasp good news, and let this bad news sit in. This bad news says, listen, Gentiles, you were separated. You were alienated. You were strangers. You had no hope. You were without God in our world. I mean, think about that for a moment. Like suddenly, our problems and the things that we've been dealing with for the past several months, for the past couple of weeks, they're nothing compared to how sad, how depressing this is. What Paul is saying is, listen, Gentiles, you were alienated. You, you, were, you were separated. Listen, Gentiles, you were strangers. You had no hope because you had no God. Like when I, when I listen to this and I read this, I think, wow, how depressing it is. But then I love verse 13 because it says, but now, but now, anytime you get a but now or a therefore in the, in the Bible, man, this is good news, right? In Christ Jesus, you were once far off, but you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What I love about this is that the old division of people into two classifications, Jew or Gentile or Jews and Greeks, it has been transcended by a new entity that Jesus established. It's been transcended. To be brought near means to have access to God and the way we have access to God, whether whether we are from here or there or we live like this or that or our skin color is this or this or or whatever, there's no longer. We have access to God. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus, because of the blood of Christ, Paul says. We cannot add anything to this. We can add nothing to this. And so the question that we have to ask again, is the Bible sufficient for all matters of faith and practice? And if the blood of Jesus has removed all division among us, then we have to ask the question, which side of the fight am I on? Which side of the fight am I joining? Verse 14 says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, don't miss that, He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Now what is peace? What's harmonious friendship with God and with one another? That's what peace is. And the opposite of peace is hostility. And Jesus has quenched hostility. And so again, if the Bible is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice, then which side am I on? Am I I in the peace work or am I in the hostility work? When we see someone we don't like or represent something that we can't stand, is there peace in our hearts or is there hostility in our hearts? If there is hostility, then we are just like Peter when we say, no, Lord, can't be possible. And we disqualify him from being Lord when we say no. He's already done the work. And so to hold hostility in our hearts against anyone at any time for any reason and any purpose is not 
go in line with what Jesus accomplished on the cross through his blood. The opposite of peace is hostility, and Jesus has eliminated that. Jesus created a unified new people from the old hostile camps. He took the old hostile camps, and he brought them together. Jesus just doesn't accomplish peace. He is our peace. And so verse 17 in Ephesians chapter 2 says this, And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. And do we preach peace? It says this, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And I love this because what Paul does is he reverses what he said earlier. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are saints and we are members of the household of God. And therefore, because Scripture and the Bible is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice, we will behave so. And when Jesus said, as he started the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, he said so clearly, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because God has been about removing hostility and bringing peace that was accomplished through the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. Which side of the fight am I on? Am I creating more hostility because I have prejudice in my heart against that person who represents something that I absolutely cannot stand, or am I with Jesus? Am I bearing the badge that says peacemaker? There's an incredible story that I want to finish with. It's about a guy named St. Francis of Assisi. He's probably most well-known most well-known for this phrase that says this, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Well, what's interesting about that is uh, that's not really what he said, according to historians, at least not as far as we know. Whether he said it or not, the idea has taken hold of the imagination of a lot of people, and some who embrace it with great wisdom, and then others who reject it as compromise. But here's the deal. While he may have never said those words exactly, we do have some written words that says this. It's no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. You have to understand when St. Francis lived, he didn't have vehicles, and so you walked everywhere you went. And what he was trying to say is, listen, there's no use going anywhere. There's no use walking anywhere to preach to a group of people unless my walking is already preaching. In other words, I think St. Francis of Assisi understood that the Bible, the Bible is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. And how he conducted himself represented the faith that he believed in. And so Francis was a young man from from a wealthy family in the day. Interestingly enough, his dad actually sold fabric. And if you sold fabric and you were the developer of fabric, man, that that was a lucrative business. And so St. Francis then fought in a war where two towns were against each other. He was a part of the business, the family business. At one point in his life, it's recorded that he lost all meaning in life, and he began to search for something deeper. He fought an illness, many illnesses actually, including malaria, which he caught while being imprisoned. 
And so at one point, Francis is wandering the countryside and he walks into this old broken down, beat up church and he seems to hear the voice of God. And the voice of God says to him, help me rebuild my house. And so Francis literally starts cleaning and scrubbing and building and fixing this old church countryside. This old church that was on the countryside, it led him to deny all of his earthly possessions, all of them. He denied himself. He left the family business and he gave his life to a life that he believed that God had asked him to do, to to help the poor. What many people don't know is about a journey that he took to Egypt. It was one of the bloodiest wars during the period of the Crusades. In the year 1219, Francis and another friar that belonged to the Franciscan, we went to convert the Sultan of Egypt, or at least they were committed to converting him. And if they couldn't convert him, they knew that they would die trying to do so. And so Francis went to Egypt. It was during the fifth crusade where a crusader army had been encamped for over a year around the walled city of Damietta and not far from one of the main channels of the Nile River. But the sultan, his name was Al-Kamil, was encamped upstream on the other side of this walled city. And so this bloody attack launched on the city by the Christians, by the Christians. It was so bloody that both sides actually agreed to take a truce for four weeks. And it's believed that it was during this truce that Francis crossed into the Muslim territory. And he was captured and he was brought before the Sultan of Egypt. He explained to Al-Kamil that he came in peace And so Al-Kamil offered him food and allowed him to stay in the Muslim camp. And we know that the sultan received Francis and that Francis preached preached to the sultan. How do we know that? It's because Francis was able to return unharmed. And so when Francis returns to the crusader and and he reports how he was treated, he was hoping that the pope and the cardinals would be moved to just turn back and return home. They don't. But historians tell us that Francis was moved because all of a sudden he rewrote his order, he rewrote the code of conduct, he rewrote his constitution that his followers would go and that they would live in peace among the Muslims, that they would be peace bearers, not hostile. Maybe Francis got it. And so the crusaders marched on and they made one major fatal mistake. They set up camp in the middle of the floodplain on the Nile River. And Al-Kamil, the sultan, orders that the river's slew, gates opened, and suddenly the lands were flooded, sinking the crusaders, capturing the horses into the muck and the mud. And the crusaders are surrounded by the Muslim army with no escape. (laughs) Suddenly the crusaders are going to face starvation, hunger and death. And against the advice of the sultan's generals who said, go, kill, hurry, go kill. Instead, Al-Kamil, the sultan, orders food to be delivered to the crusaders. He has food brought to them so that they don't die of starvation and hunger. See, when Francis crossed into the line and he sat with the sultan As a person of peace, something changed. 
Something changed. This act of compassion and this act of humility did not end the Crusades, but it was the beginning of the end of the conflict. And the Crusaders surrendered control of the city and returned to Europe. And Al-Kamil, he ruled for 20 more years. And this is what we know about his reign as king, as sultan. It was marked as pure fairness for the Christians who lived in Egypt. He treated the Christians with dignity, honor, and respect. The guy on the other side who experienced the peacemaking of St. Francis of Assisi. During World War I, there's a poem written about St. Francis that says this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Let me just tell you this. The most effective evangelistic tool is to love and to live our life in such a way that the world can't understand it. I mean, the greatest way to share our faith is to live a life and to love in such a way that the world can't help but look and say, what? To look at us and say, I don't understand. Doesn't that make you mad? Like, like you should hate those people. No, 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 no. The greatest life we could live that has the greatest amount of influence is a life of love and a life of peace and a life of harmony. Not hostility, not hatred, not prejudice. We can have the greatest influence in our world when Christians understand and believe that Jesus has already accomplished reconciliation and has removed hostility and we are going to join him in his fight and in his pursuit of peace. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? I think this all has something to do with partnering with God in completing the reconciliation that he's already declared. I think it has something to do with the peace that Jesus has already given to us through the blood of, that was shed. And so which side are you on? Which side am I on? We're going to sing a song. And, and, and I know that a lot of people wonder about this song and there's certain phrases in the song they don't like, but I, I want you to understand that when we sing it and you really think of what Jesus accomplished on the cross when his blood was shed on, on <laughs> for us to bring harmony, to bring unity, to bring peace and to remove all the wicked things that belong to the evil one. I want you to understand that what Jesus accomplished on earth on the cross and what he wants to accomplish in the kingdom that he continues to build, 
It looks foolish to many, but not to us, because we've been changed by the cross. Let's sing the song together. the opportunity for relationship, that God, that you have uh, initiated bringing peace to us individually through Jesus. 
God, when I, uh, when I stop and I consider what it is that I've been given, it is overwhelming. God, I am grateful. God, I am humbled. God, I'd ask that uh, you'd help us to really grasp that sense this morning, right now in this moment. God, the gift that we've been given, the, the peace that you initiated through Jesus on our behalf. God, I just um, would ask that in that moment, as, as we as we grasp that or try and grasp that, we have that overwhelming sense that that would uh, just stir in our hearts this morning. And that God, uh, this week, as we move from this moment today, God, it would just be a reminder to us to be the, the bringers of peace to the world around us, to the, the people that we have influence with, the little community of folks that surround us, our neighbors, our friends, our relatives, and that we would not be participants in the divisiveness of our culture, of the world around us conversations that uh, we get to be a part of, but God, that we would be deliverers of unity, bearers of peace, representations of Jesus to the world around us. God, if there's some stuff that we're dealing with today, would you help us in your spirit to set that aside so that we wouldn't be consumed and overwhelmed by what surrounds us. But God, that we could focus on what it is you have for us to accomplish this week. And that we would be bearers of peace, representations of Jesus. Thanks for that opportunity in advance. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.
We celebrate good news every Sunday in the taking of communion. That Jesus is our peace. That God takes Jesus into our world. And by his death, burial, and resurrection, reunites us and brings peace between the two of us. So let's celebrate that today. Let's celebrate through this simple little meal what Jesus did. We say, thank you, Jesus for giving your life, your body, and take the bread. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood on my behalf. God, thank you for reconciling the barrier, the gap that stood between us. I, uh, I, I pray that and I, God, I, I often do not comprehend, grasp what it is I'm praying. The chasm, the depth, the distance that separated us. The failure. God, the uh, the destruction that was to come without redemption. We try and grasp that, though, today in communion and give you thanks for Jesus and the hope that we live by of eternity someday. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. said as we began today that I hope that you were uh, encouraged and challenged in some way. I hope you were. Maybe you'd even share that with us uh, this morning. Go to mvcclive.com, fill out a communication card. Let us know how God spoke to you today. We do desire every week that uh, there's some spiritual step that happens, some next step in your life that helps you to be more like Jesus, helps you to represent him better in the world that you're around. For some of us, uh, we would hope for most of us, all of us, that one of those steps would be that I need to share this life with a community of people called a small group. If you're not involved in uh, what we call a grow group at Mountain View, man, groups have just started. Uh, we've got some new groups forming, some groups that have been um, together for a while have, have multiplied and are reforming, and it's a great opportunity to jump in. If you're ready to take the next step of joining a small group, email me, craig at mvcclive.com. Give, simply give the church a call this week and say, hey, I'd like to talk to Craig about getting in a small group. I'd love to plug you in this week, help you take that step. As you contemplate that today, we're going to finish up musically with worship this morning.
sky, traced out by the city lines, my world from a mile high, best seat in the house tonight, touch down on the cold black tongue, hold on for the 
sudden stop Breathing the familiar shock of confusion and chaos All those people going somewhere Why have I never cared? Give me your eyes for just one second Give me your eyes so I can see Everything that I keep missing Give me your love for humanity Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. Yeah. Trying the best to smile at me To hide what's underneath There's a man just to arrive Black suit and a bright red tie Too ashamed to tell his wife He's out of work, he's buying time All those people going somewhere Why have I never cared? Give me your eyes for just one second so I can see everything that I keep missing. Give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see everything that I keep missing. Give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. Yeah.